Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show planned for you today. Brianna, what is going on? <laughs> well, is the Iran nuclear deal dead? The Quincy Institute's Dr. Trita Parsi joins later. We'll get into that viral clip of President Biden. Plus, in my radar, I'll get into newly released archival documents related to the JFK assassination. You won't want to miss that either. But first, The Intercept's Lee Fong is out with the Twitter files part eight, how Twitter quietly aided the Pentagon's covert online PSYOP campaign. Let's get into it. According to Fong, Twitter gave approval and special protection to the U.S. military's online psychological influence operations. Despite knowledge that Pentagon propaganda accounts used covert identities, Twitter did not suspend many for around two years or more. Some remain active today. In 2017, a U.S. Central Command official sent Twitter a list of 52 Arab language accounts that, quote, that said, quote, we used to amplify certain messages. The official asked for priority service for six accounts, verification for one, and whitelist abilities for the others. The same day CENTCOM sent the list, Twitter officials used a tool to grant a special whitelist tag that essentially provides verification status to the accounts without the blue check, meaning they are exempt from spam or abuse flags and are more visible or likely to trend on hashtags. The CENTCOM accounts on the list tweeted frequently about U.S. military priorities in the Middle East, including promoting anti-Iran messages, promotion of the Saudi Arabia-U.S.-backed war in Yemen, and accurate U.S. drone strikes that claimed to only hit terrorists, accurate in quotations. Obviously, Twitter's comms team was closely in touch with reporters working to minimize Twitter's role in the amplification and the protection of the propaganda accounts. When The Washington Post reported on the scandal, Twitter officials congratulated each other because the story didn't mention any Twitter employees. Fong concludes, quote, the conduct with the U.S. military's covert network stands in stark contrast with how Twitter has boasted about rapidly identifying and taking down covert accounts tied to state-backed influence operations, including Thailand, Russia, Venezuela, and others since 2016. Uh, yikes. <laughs> so this is bad and very hypocritical because what this reveals is that the U.S. government, the deep state, is doing exactly what um, sort of everyone in liberal mainstream media circles accused Russia of exactly. doing 2016. Foreign-based Twitter accounts, bots, spammy accounts, having an influence on the political conversation, deliberately set up to, to surreptitiously, um, inauthentically, mm -hmm. remember the whole inauthentic accounts? Mm -hmm promote a political narrative favorable to a foreign power. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we said Russia was doing. That's what we're doing. That's but what this but is. It's, but it's our, it's our fake bots, right? right. It's, and this has always been the case. With all the vying against bot accounts and fake news and misinformation campaigns, it's always been clear that the real problem was whose misinformation campaign yeah. it was, whose fake bots it was. We've always lived in the world where the idea of a Bernie bro bot lives large in the public imagination, despite Bernie actually just having authentic, mm -hmm. very enthusiastic fans that like to tweet a lot, and things like the K-Hive. 
get an explicit endorsement from folks like Kamala Harris's own husband, who was famously pictured with his arm around one of the worst offenders, who was later shown to be basically paid to to be to coordinate this larger team of of, of, of fake, not some of which are fake, some of which are real people, but coordinated, inauthentic K Hive accounts. So it's never been a, a, a consistent ideological, um, uh, you know, distaste for misinformation, coordinated bot accounts, coordinated messaging. In this example, it goes far beyond whatever like political internal machinations with K-Hive and Bernie Bro and Warren Snakes and all of that stupidness from 2020. This is the government having accounts that were initially identified as related to the government, right, in their, in their mm -hmm. hashtags, et cetera, that slowly just took that stuff out, used uh, Arab language so it seemed like there were local organic tweets that affirmed the role of the U.S., in various regions around the world. Some of the accounts even used deep fake images for the, uh, the, the, the profiles, so, you know, the, the idea like fabricated, completely computer-generated identities. And Twitter had not only knowledge of these accounts, but helped facilitate them from getting tagged as spam or bots and gave them, I didn't even know this was possible, a, a, a blue check status, a verified status, without actually having the verification logo. So completely under the radar, they're insulated from all of the reporting, um, flagging, protections that people can use to try to point out content that is inauthentic. You wouldn't even know that those kind of reports weren't working because they don't actually have the blue check protection. They just, I mean, they do actually have the blue check protection, but there's nothing uh, explicit about it on their profile. Right, even though these these uh, accounts are violating Twitter policies. Yep. And, and that's the key thing, because I, I guess, okay, whatever. If the U.S. government wants to take the position that its influence campaigns are legitimate, uh -huh. others are not, America good, Russia bad, mm -hmm. okay, you, you see how the American government would have that view. Mm -hmm. But Twitter is under no obligation to to also hold right. that view and to treat those accounts differently. Twitter could say, no, our policies are our policies. You're not allowed to do this on our platform. Um, or it could say, sorry, we're hands off. Anything goes. We're not going to pay attention to this stuff. But again, they were very, they were very one directiony about these things. Yes. One direction. <laughs> Don't bring one direction Didn't into mean this. That. Sorry, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> but look, like, Zane. And when you look at some of these emails, so to be clear, this we got, we have this information because Lee was not. Um, you know, he's a reporter at The Intercept, obviously, a former colleague of mine. He wasn't given access to the full Twitter files in the way that Barry Weiss and, um, you know, Matt Taibbi and others well, do were. We, what, what do you mean? He, so what happened was last week he was given an opportunity for three days to make requests. I, I guess in a similar process you would make FOIA requests, but a lawyer on the um, Twitter files end of it basically administered the quest, did the searches for him, and, and sent the documents back over to Lee. So Lee was clear, like, this isn't even, like, the full investigation using the search terms that he necessarily would have picked if he were uh, allowed direct access to the documents. But even so, he got this treasure trove of files, which I think he did a really excellent job explaining in this full piece at The Intercept, which everybody uh, should read. Um, and that also raises some interesting questions about what the best format for relaying some of this information is, whether the Twitter <laughs> listicle is as compelling. I found his uh, article much easier to read yeah. <laughs> than many of these Twitter threads. It was, it was very good. Call well, me old-fashioned. Right. I, yeah. Same, same here. But look at, look at what some of the stuff that came out. Um, so there was there was one U.S. Central Command um, official named uh, whose name was Nathaniel Kaler. And I loved this back and forth because he, there's a document in which he is writing and complaining He's complaining about some of these fake accounts. I can't get over this. He says, we've got some accounts that are not indexing on hashtags. Perhaps they were flagged as bots. Like, 
that's a bot. Like it, <laughs> it, it is, it is a bot. You know, a few of these had built a real following. We were hoping to salvage. I, I mean, and the thing is, it's just we know that this stuff happens, yeah. right? We, we, and what they're doing is, from their standpoint, they're promoting American interests and sure. trying to undermine hostile regimes and you know foster messages that appear authentic. They're right. not authentic, but appear authentically pro-American right. and make people see, oh, people just like me in other parts of the world yes, actually like, think like Iran the freedom is bad. Are here. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the issue is not Collar who's doing his job. It's that he's writing this to Twitter, and Twitter is not only you know, acquiescing to these requests, helping them, helping to facilitate this charade. But they are also um, going out of their way to brag about not being caught up in the, some of the media fallout as the Washington Post reported on some of this down the line. So which the picture that is presented is that there's this real identity of interest between what should be an independent corporation like Twitter and the U.S. government. And I don't want to be one of those people who just throws the fascism word around too much, but that's that's literally the, defi the, the, the definition that so many of us are going by, this unholy relationship between corporate entities and the government to deceive the broader public. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's, it's deeply concerning. Think how many times, how much we're learning about the government's efforts to just make these companies be, be mouthpieces for them. And it really speaks to uh, what a lot, of, um, a lot of people on the right these days are saying about how, well, how, how can you say they're private companies? They're just, they should be treated like common carriers or the law should reflect common carriers. I push back on that a lot because I don't think common carrier is necessarily a good model for these platforms to the extent that they are operating as, as private entity. I mean, they have ad-based models that are trying to, mm -hmm. they want to curate a user experience that sells for advertisers. That's their business model. Mm -hmm. That doesn't fit what they're doing. But then they have to distance themselves from the government. They have to say no. They, and, and, and you see in, in their messages that sometimes they want to say no, sometimes they feel pressured not to. Reform has to come on the other end, clearly. But uh, I, I think... Uh, e even people like us who had come to understand that there's way too much overlap at this point are a little floored at the amount of um, of of just overlap of 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 connect of ooey gooey connections yes. of yes. of of telling them what to do of content moderation decisions being made by the FBI right. or the and, Department and, of Homeland and Security then they or the gaslight CDC. Gaslight us about it. That's the thing. Like we all, a lot of people have said, well, we knew this already, didn't we? Sure. But they've been gaslighting us about the fact that they didn't, in fact, do this. And to your point about all of the Red Scare, Russia, Russia bot stuff, they've been so explicitly saying they disapprove of exactly this kind of behavior for so long that it is, in my opinion, very galling to see it trotted out front and center, all of the back scenes machinations that have been happening with our own U.S. government. But we'll get into this a little bit more on My Radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, did the CIA kill JFK? It's a question on millions of minds following last Thursday's release of thousands of JFK assassination records. More than 13,000 documents were released by Biden, but 3% of records remain redacted. And the disclosure of over 4,400 documents has been delayed by the Biden administration. Now, under the 1992 John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, which Biden voted for as a senator, all documents related to the assassination were supposed to be released by 2017. 
Donald Trump was the first president to violate this obligation, releasing only a partial batch back in 2017. Why? Well, reportedly, he was under extreme pressure from his CIA director, Mike Pompeo, not to release the remaining documents. According to reporting at the time, releasing the full trove of documents would be, quote, infuriating to people at the CIA and elsewhere who are determined to keep at least some of the information secret. Now, after Biden's impartial disclosure, more and more people are asking, what is there to hide? Biden is justifying his non-disclosure under an exception to the 1992 JFK Records Act, namely to protect against an identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations. But Kennedy's murder was nearly 60 years ago. It's difficult to imagine which intelligence officers out in the field or what geopolitical arrangements might be damaged by new revelations about the slain president. But the language of the act itself is revealing. Documents may be, may be kept from disclosure to protect intelligence operations, perhaps more specifically, to protect those intelligence operations from criticism. And given the lack of confidence the conservative public now has in these deep state institutions following the Twitter files disclosures and the Trump investigation, it's no wonder Biden might not be eager to add fuel to the fire. Now, Tucker Carlson tackled this issue in a monologue last week that already has over a million views. In it, he purported to have proof that the CIA was, in fact, involved in Kennedy's murder. Let's take a listen. We spoke to someone who had access to these still-hidden CIA documents, a person who was deeply familiar with what they contain. We asked this person directly, did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John F. Kennedy, an American president? And here's the reply we received verbatim. Quote, the answer is yes. I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what we thought it was. It's all fake. It's hard to imagine a more jarring response than that. Again, this is not a, quote, conspiracy theorist that we spoke to. Not even close. This is someone with direct knowledge of the information that once again is being withheld from the American public. And the answer we received was unequivocal. Yes, the CIA was involved in the assassination of the president. Now, it might just be my lawyer brain, but I believe they were involved is far from the conclusive proof I was expecting. Moreover, I have concerns about relying on an unidentified source for such bombshell conclusions, especially when crucial documents that might, in fact, pr provide conclusive evidence are still in the wind. But Tucker Carlson raised some legitimately important issues in this segment, including interrogating the weirdness of JFK's assassin being immediately assassinated himself and the fact that the term conspiracy theory was coined to cast doubt on those who doubted the official reports on Kennedy's death. Interesting stuff. He also was right in one other important area, giving credit to the left for recognizing that the FBI and CIA are are anti-democratic entities long before the right, back when conservatives considered it to be something like a patriotic duty to protect those institutions. Take a listen. You laid it out really well. And, you know, it used to be that conservatives like me dismissed uh, theories from the left about JFK's assassination as just left-wing conspiracy theories. But over time, 
uh, I think that the left looks as if they were quite justified in not trusting yes. the intelligence services. And I think the WMD pretext for the Iraq war was a red pill, a slowly dawning red pill for me. Mm. Remember, leftists, not liberals, but leftists, have been highly critical of the FBI and CIA since FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover dedicated 85 percent of its illegal covert intelligence resources toward attacking left groups like the NAACP, Vietnam protesters, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Black Panther Party, Puerto Rican independence movements, and the American Indian movement. I mean, 15 percent of the FBI's energy went toward far-right targets like the Ku Klux Klan. During the McCarthy era, the FBI used a variety of illegal practices in pursuit of alleged communists, which is a political identification, I'll remind you, that is totally legal. <laughs> they burglarized, illegally opened mail, and set wiretaps. The National Lawyers Guild, one of the few legal organizations willing to stick their neck out and defend communists, was broken into at least 14 times by the FBI over a period of about four years. They also drugged and extrajudicially murdered Fred Hampton. That's no conspiracy theory. That's fact. And many believe the FBI and or CIA were involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. as well. The traditional conservative posture of indifference to this stuff until it hurts them and their interests is exactly how these agencies have amassed the unchecked power they have now. It's quite literally a case of Martin Niemöller's excuse me, famous poem, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, here we are. Will there be a sustained bipartisan criticism of the FBI and CIA? If proof that the CIA murdered one of America's most beloved presidents doesn't do the trick, what will? Now, this matters because the deep state's corruption is ongoing. See Twitter Files Part 8. The Intercept just reported yesterday evening that Twitter, uh, uh, that Twitter, a private company, <laughs> remember, um, protected the Pentagon's social media misinformation network. The military used accounts that concealed their affiliation with the Pentagon to manipulate public media perceptions, and Twitter helped. Here's the story. Reporter Lee Fong, my former colleague at The Intercept, was allowed to make document requests of Twitter over the course of three days last week. And look at what he found. In 2017, a U.S. Central Command official named Nathaniel Collar emailed a Twitter representative with a request to approve the verification of an account and whitelist a list of Arab language accounts that they, quote, used to amplify certain messages. Now, as annoying as celebrity blue checks can be, deep state blue checks are a whole other ballgame. Collar went on to write that, quote, a few of these had built a real following, complaining that some of these bots weren't indexing on hashtags and speculating that they might have been flagged as bots. So Central Command called the manager over some of its fake news accounts being flagged as bots when, in fact, they were inauthentic accounts. I mean, it's incredible stuff. What were those accounts tweeting about? Well, some were promoting U.S.-supported militias in Syria and anti-Iran messages in Iraq. And how did Twitter respond? The same day the government made its request, quote, Twitter's site integrity team went into an internal company system used for managing the reach 
of various users and applied a special exception tag. Nice to know that while authentic left-leaning accounts were getting shadow banned, the government's bots got special Twitter exemptions. Now, you should read Fong's full account at The Intercept and learn about how Twitter profiles with deepfake photos were used to shape public opinion about the military's role overseas and Twitter's role in concealing all of it. You should also keep in mind that the national intelligence budget It's nearly $90 billion this year, 70% of which went to defense contractors, according to a 2007 report. While our politicians complain about not being able to raise the minimum wage or extend the child tax credit, pointing to migrants at the border as the source of all of your problems, they're funding the deep state with impunity to harass, prosecute, and even murder activists, civil rights icons, and maybe even presidents. And sometimes they even get the public sector, Twitter, to give them an assist. I think this was perhaps, I mean, people can argue, but perhaps the most significant Twitter files drop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, it might be apparent that I was already writing my radar when it dropped and I just had to include it. And there was this nice um, overlap between this realization that, look, there was a really healthy and growing skepticism of the intelligence community right now. And I'm so glad to see it. Um, and it's exactly for reasons that were disclosed in the Twitter files that we have to keep that energy up and stay with this kind of right-left solidarity over applying pressure to these institutions that really have had no sincere, sustained pressure on them since the time of their founding. Yeah, absolutely. I I think uh, the conservative movement is moving in a direction of skepticism of law enforcement, and that's a a very good thing, in part because of the perception that law enforcement, uh, the FBI, other, the deep state is so against Trump, and so they've been seeing how it can be weaponized against uh, their own side. Um, and, and also, you know, the, to the extent there's a libertarian strain mm-hmm. on the right, I mean, libertarians like myself have always been skeptical of, uh, of, of government, and that means being skeptical of law enforcement and the police and national intelligence services are, are considering what what do they have at stake? What is in their self-interest? Is, is it necessarily the public good, or do they have something else going on? And, and that has always been a part of the right. It's, it's been regrettable, I think, in the kind of maybe the 80s, 90s, and aughts. Uh, the Republican Party became very much a neoconservative party, mm. and that that, that uh, was accompanied by a just kind of utter blind faith in what national security experts were telling you, what the what the G-men were yeah. telling you, the spies, those kinds of people. Before that, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of skepticism of uh, centralization and government and the expert class, et cetera. Um, so I, I, anyway, I'm I'm that's just to say that I'm I'm glad that strain is being rediscovered and hopefully can be deployed toward actually useful ends, yes. which means limiting the authorities of these people. Yes. Now. Look, I, I don't want I want to I want to be positive and you know capitalize on what I think is a sincere frustration what's going on with some of these institutions. But I would I feel like it would be remiss for me not to point out that historically what has happened is I mean I think that you're right there has always been some some quantity of conservatives who have been woke mm-hmm. and understood what was going on here. Um, but when we're talking about the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when we're talking about the growth of the Hoover FBI as we know it, and all of those anti-communist activities, those were very conservative projects. Well, and, the, and criticizing those institutions was very much seen as 
anti-patriotic. Like the, the identification of those institutions with the national interest in American patriotism and uh, anti-communism and Cold War efforts and all of that was very bound up together. So I don't, I don't put that out there as a criticism. That's just to say we have to keep in mind that it's not always going to be clear that these unaccountable institutions that have so much power and can cause so much harm are your enemy in particular. But we have to have an analysis that's separate and apart from our own personal self-interest. That's true, although the terms liberal and conservative and also what Republicans and Democrats stood for back then starts to get much sure. messier. I mean, you have Democratic administrations. You could argue they're sure. conservative if you're well, using yeah. conservative. Right? <laughs> I definitely and I, would. I, I'm sure you would. <laughs> I, and, and, and in fact, the Republican Party is, you know, is the progressive party in the in the teens. Sure, and, uh, but establi- so it, maybe it gets, establishment, it, non-establishment sure. is better because the the. Liberal Party was also not a big fan of the communists and the leftists uh, at the time either. So I take your point. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's fund doled out $2 billion to former Trump White House advisor Jared Kushner. The New York Times reports that the Saudi fund's advisors strongly objected to investing in Kushner's newly minted private investment firm, Affinity Partners. Citing concerns over inexperience, feared that the kingdom would have to shoulder most of the investment and risk, and a public relations risk given Kushner's proximity to his father-in-law and former president, Donald Trump. Uh, But ultimately, the fund went against its panel's recommendation and poured the money into Kushner's fund anyway. Kushner developed a close relationship with MBS in his short-lived tenure at the White House, during which he defended the crown prince despite U.S. intelligence agencies confirming he ordered the death of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Kushner also helped broker a deal called the Abraham Accords between Israel and other Arab monarchies, plus billions in weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. According to The Times, the Saudi fund would have a 28 percent stake in Kushner's firm, making it the main investor. Hmm. It's actually a little worse than that. I mean, he's only raised about uh, $2.5 billion total. So they only have a 28 percent stake in his firm. But the $2 billion of Saudi investment is by far the overwhelming bulk of what he's been able to raise so far. And, right. and all of the money that he's raised so far is from foreign investments, nothing domestic. When asked about that, he said, well, we don't want um, all of the attention that domestic investment would bring to us and attention to those domestic investors. Your furrowed brow reflects my <laughs> own in- incredulity uh, there. <laughs> uh, Kushner obviously was someone uh, very close, clearly, to the Saudi crown prince um, while he was a chief advisor to his father-in-law, whether he was involved yeah. in White House policy. Um, people uh, people on the right, especially, Republicans are no uh, fan, very conservative people, no fan mm. of Jared Kushner, mm. uh, always thought Trump's decision to elevate uh, uh, Kushner, who, by the way, had no history as a Republican or a conservative person, is not, right. frankly. Like Donald, Donald Trump was a, a later convert to Republicanism. Sure. I, I think Jared Kushner was a convert at the time Donald Donald Trump decided to seek right. the White House, maybe at the time he won right. the election. So had, had no uh, history of, of caring about issues that the base cares about. In fact, care, is sort of a neoliberal figure, sure. I would broadly describe. Um, someone that conservatives were not excited to see take a big role in policy, but he did take a big role in policy. Donald Trump loves his son-in-law, put mm-hmm. him in charge of every all sorts of things. 
Um, that was actually one of the early signs, I think, for conservatives that uh, Donald Trump was maybe, you know, even if they love the guy, they love what he says, they love what he stands for, was not going to be picking people for positions <laughs> That's with what it the took. same, uh, the same uh, <laughs> dedication to the cause that they felt was appropriate. Yeah. Well, look, uh, this is getting a lot of scrutiny in part because the huge investment when no one else will invest in Kushner, certainly no domestic investors, and when Kushner has had no expertise in running an investment fund successfully, his most famous kind of um, financial investment was this huge building, 666—I um, always remember the 666, I think it was Fifth Avenue in, in, in downtown Manhattan somewhere, which I was— Was it was really 666? <laughs> yes. I don't believe that. Yes. I'm looking that up. And it was a $1.8 billion boondoggle, if I recall. He ended up getting left with this very expensive property yeah. for which he six, overpaid. 666 Fifth Avenue? Fifth Avenue. There it is. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, so that's that's— his accomplishment so far. And people are concerned that, given that he doesn't actually have expertise, there's no reason why anyone would want to invest in him because he has a proven track record of making money for folks. There have been previous investments with um, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, where he got much less favorable terms with the Saudis and much less amounts of money, despite having a much longer record of actually being successful in this regard. So people are asking why. And, you know, the obvious concern is that this is either payback for Jared having negotiated all of these favorable weapons agreements, I think $10 billion worth of weapons agreements with Saudi Arabia while he was working for his father-in-law, or this is a payment for the future with the prospective hope that Donald Trump is going to be in the mm. White House again. Either way. Yeah, and look, Republicans, you know, complain about Hunter Biden all you want, and you should, and there's a lot to look into there, absolutely. Yeah. But if you're a single-issue voter on nepotism and using uh, family connections while your father figure occupies the White House to enrich yourself and maybe launder some policy in, if that's like your singular issue, I don't see how you can quite prefer the Trumps to the Bidens. Right. Um, this is this is so on the surface. It's not even hidden. It's not even particularly disguised. Yeah. It's very out there. Right. It seems it feels very improper. It, it does. And look, it was improper for him, frankly, to take a role in the White House in the first yes. place. Yes. <laughs> percent, he was giving all of his family family members seats <laughs> around the White House. That's it's absolutely absurd. It's absurd when it's a political dynasty like the Clintons. It's absurd when it's a political dynasty like the Bushes. Honestly, it's embarrassing for a country yeah. to have you know serial presidents over and over again in this way. JFK made his brother JFK, uh, the Attorney General, right? All, all of Bobby it. Bobby Kennedy. He needed to get some experience as an attorney. I think that's what he said. <laughs> that's so gross. Did you? Did, there was a, a New York Times, uh, sorry, a New York Magazine cover article about the age of the Nepo baby. Oh yes, let's talk about the <laughs> Nepo baby. That's why everyone was saying that That's on Twitter the other day. So there was for, a story, right? So for the Nepo uninitiated, baby. Nepo babies are people in Hollywood who have gotten their start because their parents are actors or directors, and it's a very thorough article that goes into different categories. The of dear Nepo Evan babies. Hansen kid is <laughs> right. such an offender here. What is right. his name? So people were saying they need to do one for journalists. Yes. A journalistic Nepo babies because it's not I have long commented on that. But it's so hard to get into if you don't have a, a leg up. And also political Nepo babies was another omission from this otherwise very thorough piece. That yeah. <laughs> well, and the journalists and Politico Nepo babies, there's a lot of overlap. I because bet. A lot of people in journalism, editors at a lot of magazines and mm -hmm. newspapers, yes, you'll recognize their last name because mm -hmm. their parents were government figures. Yeah. And, of course, that colors the coverage. That happens everywhere. Right. Um, it is... Uh, 
yeah, it's it's hard to it's much harder to make it um, in the journalism industry without wealth or family. Con- Actually, family connections are better than wealth. That's what you really need. You need someone who knows the industry and can vouch for you as a political figure so often happens. Yeah, I feel like even one of the, the Chapo guys' his father was like a, a was a big muckety muck at one of the um, yeah. establishment yes. payment, yes, like he, the New Yorker or New York, you know, one of the elite. Yep. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's yeah. The, there are. Yeah, a not couple say, lefty look, cases of there, that. There are a lot of people who happen Marxists to... Marxists with <laughs> very wealthy uh, <laughs> parents. Yeah, I mean, it happens. When you go down the list, there are some people who you think, that's why they're famous because yeah. they don't have talent. There's other people who you think, oh, they're very talented regardless, and I'm glad that they make it. For me, I'll forgive Dan Levy uh, of anything, from Schitt's Creek. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Of anything. Oh, Eugene Levy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think that he's so funny and talented. But it's, it's a great piece. The, the point of the matter is that what is obviously going on here with... Um, Jared Kushner has nothing to do with his individual talent or skill. The only financial record that he has is very disastrous. So what Saudi Arabia is doing here and investing in him seems to be nothing other than a political motivation. And what's really sorry about all this is that there's nothing anybody can really do about it. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) What else can we say? This is is something to keep our our, our eye on. We'll see what happens if, if Trump does, in fact, get in a position um, to have power again. And we'll see if there's some consistency between the critiques that have been rightly made about the relationship with Hunter Biden and his father and see if they, those carry on into some future potential Trump years. Right, I'm, I'm very glad you you bridged the gap in my mind. I'm like, why is everyone using the term Nepo baby yeah. all of a sudden? Yeah, it's I a good one. It. I get it. This is a good one. <laughs> all right. We will have more rising right after this. Stay with us. President Biden appears to have admitted on video that the Iran deal is dead. At an election rally in Oceanside, California, a woman asked Biden if he would announce that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, is still alive. According to Axios, Biden refused to publicly declare it was done, citing, quote, a lot of reasons, end quote. But he did confirm to the woman that it is dead. This is the first time that he openly expressed a pessimistic view of any way forward to reach a nuclear deal with Tehran. According to correspondent Elizabeth Hagedorn, a State Department spokesperson said Iranians killed the opportunity. What is very much alive is Biden's commitment to ensuring Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon. Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Trita Parsi, predicted this last year. In an op-ed for MSNBC, he wrote about the Iran nuclear deal talks that took place in Vienna, declaring the deal, quote, lifeless. He went on to say that pretending that a lifeless deal still carries on living is by no means a good option. And he joins us now to unpack all this. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So so break this down for us. You know, what does it mean that this is effectively dead? Well, reality is that it's obviously been lifeless for some time now. The question has been, would the parties declare it dead or not? Because if you declare it dead, and I think we have to be careful to note that uh, what Biden said is probably not what he should have said or what the American plan was. But if you declare it dead, it means that you have a crisis. Uh, And precisely because neither side actually can afford a crisis right now in the midst of everything that is taking place. And when I wrote that article, the war in Ukraine had not even begun yet. So given everything else that is going on, neither side can afford a crisis. So it's better for all sides, at least in the short term, to pretend that this deal is still somewhat salvageable 
in order to defer the crisis to the future. In the meantime, try to think of what to do when that day comes. So I don't think this was uh, part of the president's talking points to go public with this thing. Um, and, and this may now create a problem now rather than later for the administration. Well, Dr. Parsi, help us understand the nature of that crisis. What are the implications of not having not only a, an Iran nuclear deal, but no kind of path to having one? Well, I think, first of all, I, I'm very happy you asked that question, because it's also important to know that the administration said about a week or so ago that the diplomacy is not limited to the JCPOA. So even if there is no JCPOA, it does not mean that there is no path towards another diplomatic solution. And I personally think that's going to be extremely difficult given all the circumstances right now and the history. But nevertheless, that's an important statement because it means that the diplomacy has not been exhausted just because the deal is dead. The reason why that's important comes to the second or the first part of your question, which is if diplomacy is declared not only dead, or JCP is not just declared dead, but diplomacy is exhausted, well, then the United States is essentially only left with the option of either accepting an Iranian nuclear bomb de facto or going to war. And the last thing the United States needs right now is another military conflict in the Middle East, particularly given everything else that is going on from Taiwan to Ukraine. How do we get here? Were we just kind of dead in the water for having this kind of agreement once Trump pulled out of it? No, this deal was absolutely salvageable, and both sides have committed numerous mistakes. And the last biggest mistake was the one that the Iranians committed in September when they didn't accept the offer that was on the table or came back with a counter offer that was so far off, far off that it just made everyone lose hope. But also, I would have to say the biggest mistake, the first biggest mistake that I think set the stage for everything else, unfortunately, is the mistake of Biden not going back into the deal quickly, if not immediately when he became president, through an executive order, rather than choosing uh, to first spend several weeks uh, consulting with the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the only three countries that actually oppose this deal, hmm. uh, and later on seeking a negotiated return rather than just going back in. Hmm. That's such a key point. Yeah, I think it is. And I'm curious, apart from the delay from the Biden administration, and again, you can't stress that enough, the, there, there's a whole list at this point of things he could have done by executive order that would have made a meaningful difference to the trajectory of his presidency. But aside from the delay from the Biden administration, what are the particulars? You mentioned a little, uh, a little a moment ago that there were aspects of the deal that were put on the table that were rejected by Iran. What, what are the kinds of particulars that are being negotiated over right now? Well, at this stage, you know, almost everything has been resolved with the exception of a couple of issues. And one of the things the Iranians uh, have sought to have is to, A, have guarantees or assurances that the United States would not quit the deal again. For the Iranians, obviously, it would be a major problem if they go back into the deal together with the U.S., or the Iranians are in the deal, but they let the U.S. back into the deal, and then the U.S. quits again. Politically, economically, uh, it would be a major challenge for them. The United States' position has been that there are no uh, real strong assurances that can be provided uh, because the United States, this current government, not only cannot predict what the next president will do, but also does not want to tie that president's hand. I'm not very sympathetic to that argument because it is Donald Trump that did exactly that. He did try and quite successfully try to tie the hands of President Biden 
by putting in poison pills at the very last months of his presidency to make it as difficult as possible to get the United States to be able to come back into the deal. So I think the, the administration should have been more aggressive in terms of trying to figure out some of those things. But then there were also uh, demands and uh, requests on the Iranian side that the U.S. probably could not meet. Uh, but bottom line is, if from the very beginning the U.S. had simply gone back in, yes, some of these issues would have absolutely remained, but the U.S. could then have negotiated those issues from inside the deal. That would have meant that the Iranians would not have advanced their nuclear program as much as they have in the last uh, 20 or so months. And some of the biggest uh, and most difficult and dangerous steps that have been taken have actually been taken on the Biden administration, such as the Iranians going up to 60% enriched uranium. You know, at a time where the Biden administration, the foreign policy team is so focused on the threat of Russia to Ukraine and more broadly, and the threat of China, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, et cetera, we're, we're so uh, focused on those nations and, and what they mean for the world. And regardless of what you think about that, you know, you might expect the U.S. government might want to take, you know, put, put, get other distractions, just kind of have them settled and worked out, like Iran. But that doesn't seem to be the approach at all. We feel like we can do everything at once or we can take on every, every threat, every antagonistic regime in a, in a you know, non-negotiating kind of context. Well, I think actually the administration's view is that that is exactly what they've tried to do, uh, essentially focus on those other issues and keep this one calm. Their approach, however, or, or their, um, the willingness to spend political capital to actually resolve it and keep it calm have simply not been there in the same way. I think it's important to note that Joe Biden does not see the Iran nuclear deal necessarily as his legacy. It's Obama's legacy. From the very beginning, this issue was not a top priority for the administration. They wanted to keep it calm. They didn't they want it to explode. They would like to see it resolved. But the commitment of political capital to get that done was never really uh, there. And part of the reason for that is because Biden had other priorities. Dr. Parsi, you mentioned that there were other paths forward other than the JCPOA. What do those look like? Uh, I'm, I'm not arguing that there are. I'm just saying that um, even if the JCPOA now fails, it doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to diplomatically uh, resolve this issue. There are other ways. They're extremely difficult. If you thought that it was politically costly for the administration to uh, go back into the JCPOA, you can just imagine how politically costly it will be to restart these negotiations from scratch. The mistrust is deeper now than it was two years ago. The circumstances in Iran with the ongoing protest is adding difficulty for the Biden administration to want to sit uh, next to the Iranians and also raises questions as to whether the, uh, uh, the government in Iran will remain in place, which is a legitimate question. So all of these different factors means that there may be another diplomatic path. It should be exhausted, but we should have no illusions about the fact that it's actually more difficult than the existing one of the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. According to an excerpt from author Chris Whipple's new book, the, Flight, the Fight of His Life, President Joe Biden told a close friend that Vice President Kamala Harris was a, quote, work in progress. 
Biden was also reportedly annoyed at Harris's husband, second, second gentleman Doug Emhoff, for complaining about the assignments she receives as vice president, saying Biden wouldn't ask Harris to do anything he wasn't responsible for in his two terms as vice president. Coming for Doug, even. Yeah. So, you know, a work in progress, it's not what I would love to hear uh, my president say about me if I were vice president, but it's not the it's not the worst thing in the world. That could maybe perhaps is an honest assessment of someone who's growing into the role. The question is, is she actually growing into the role and showing improvement? Well, and first of all, first things first, did, did he, is this on the record in the book? He did, I don't think it is, right? This is probably, this is back talk, or this is, I heard it from someone who said it, who some heard someone who said it kind of, R fire and fury type stuff, right? Yeah. 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 So we don't know what he actually said, but it wouldn't surprise me if Joe Biden is not is under impressed with Kamala Harris. I mean, he picked her, um, not for the reasons of her remarkable political talent, clearly. Right. He was very explicit about the fact that he was going to pick a black woman president long before he as a vice president. Or at least sorry. a woman. Didn't he say black woman as well? But wasn't it down to Kamala or I thought uh, Amy Klobuchar was legitimately in the mix? Well, what had happened was once George Floyd, George Floyd happened right. and Amy Klobuchar had a connection to a poli the police officer involved, mm -hmm. uh, had previously had a, a case of police right. misconduct that she was the prosecutor for and had returned him to the force. That ended her aspirations. But, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, I think, so you're right. Maybe it wasn't explicitly, exclusively black women, but that was the implication, especially once George Floyd protests started emerging. And Biden framed it as though this is what the black community wanted and this is what we were going to give. Right. And certainly there were a lot of elite black tastemakers in the media who were clamoring for this. I think a lot of other folks had some other substantive demands. Kamala Harris herself having a policing and prosecutorial Correct. background. Uh, Correct. Just, just like Amy Klobuchar. Correct. So. Which is something you weren't allowed to say right. in certain polite media circles right. back in 2020. But here we are in this uh, media article goes through some of her less distinguished moments in her vice presidency, namely the awkwardness around an interview she gave about being assigned to the southern border. And apparently she complained about having that assignment, um, partly because of the negative exposure that it got her in this interview, you know, the, the do not mm -hmm. come <laughs> and all of that, 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 that came out of that assignment. Well, she never visits the border. Well, that was, that was part of the issue in the, in the interview. They were asked, like, are you going to the border? And she gave one of her classic sort of word salad answers that yeah. got her in a lot of trouble. So look, I think that Biden is probably right that he, every, and every vice president gets some unsavory jobs and it's not necessarily easy um, and I will credit Kamala Harris with the border being a difficult issue for her to negotiate. However, I think it's also fair to say that she's negotiated those issues with less skill than similarly situated vice presidents. She hasn't really endeared herself to the public very well. Uh, Joe Biden, when he was vice president, I think was broadly popular. Sure. Um, was pretty well liked. General, I, not that he necessarily did a lot. Um, honestly, it sounds like his foreign policy instincts within the uh, Obama administration were better than the advice that Obama was getting from Hillary Clinton sure. uh, that he unfortunately took uh, with respect certainly to Libya and some other issues. So, uh, so you can see how Joe Biden, uh, without necessarily even setting out to gear himself for a presidential run, I think he was very much 
on the fence during that period and then ultimately decided to bow to Hillary Clinton, which ended up being a colossally bad decision right. because he's a much more popular political figure than, than Hillary Clinton. I think even people who despise him have to concede that. Correct. Uh, similarly, Kamala Harris is being set up to be Biden's successor, um, whether anyone wants that or not, because by virtue of being the vice president, she will have this platform to launch a bid whenever that is. I expect it to be in 2028, not 2024, but whenever Biden is exiting the political scene. And she will be contested because she is not particularly popular. Yeah. And she has all this uh, baggage from not having really achieved anything on her own. So if, And she's going to be vulnerable if she does end up being the nominee. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're a—I don't know what Democrats are doing, frankly. If you're a yeah. Democratic strategist, if you care about electing Democrats, Joe Biden's your guy. You, I, I see why you'd be all excited to have him for as long as you possibly can. He just had a huge victory in the midterms. But eventually you're going to have to make—there's a good chance you're going to have to make do with her. And they're making no effort whatsoever to have her be more popular. Yeah. And Kamala, she wasn't a senator for very long. She doesn't have a very— Long record there, unlike Joe Biden, you know. Right. She, you know. She, had, she didn't have. She won in this year and this year and mm-hmm. this year and this year. You know, Joe Biden has been winning elections since mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know since our grandparents were toddlers or something. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I mean, I think he, I mean he was like what the youngest yeah. Congress person ever at, at the at the time. So look, a lot of people have argued that part of trying to reorder the Democratic Party primary and putting South Carolina first is not just for Joe Biden's benefit, but to set the stage for Kamala Harris, who has a very steep uphill battle ahead of her if she ever decides to run for president. The hope being that because the um, endorsement advice of people like James Clyburn in the state is so influential with the Democratic population there that she might be able to get an early win with South Carolina in a way that makes her seem like a plausible candidate that pushes out any prospective challengers um, in a way that wouldn't be the case if she were obliged to, you know, win Mm -hmm. Iowa, which is not a thing that I imagine her doing in a million years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But she's going to have uh, she's going to have a lot of j- just like that. There's going to be a lot of uh, power uh, on her side. There's going to be a lot of institutional weight carrying her over the line. And uh, but she could face a real challenge. From- can, can can I get past this? This is this is the clip of her being asked by Lester Holt at NBC. Do you have any plans to visit the border? Straightforward question. Kamala's response: At some point, you know, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. And that day is every day. <laughs> That's my favorite quote I mean, it's by like, her. She, like, look, I think she actually seems like a nice person. You know, I, I say this over and over again. There was one clip toward the very end of her uh, primary campaign where she put out a video of her cooking Indian food with Mindy Colling, and she seemed to come alive. And hearing her talk about something that she's genuinely knowledge about, knowledgeable about and cares about really spotlighted how little she seems knowledgeable about or maybe even cares about some of the political tasks Mm -hmm. she's tasked with. I I would love to see her in a context that makes her thrive and blossom and makes her a genuinely happy person. I have no ill will against this woman, but I don't know that running for president is going to set her up for that sort of success. You know what I think she should do? What? She should beat up on uh, woke people sometimes. She should make fun of... uh, That's what Obama does. He does that. It works. 
I don't care for him very much either, Robbie. Well, but well, but he's the most uh, successful work? political figure of our lives. For him doing this in his sunset years, where he's he did hired. it. No, he did it uh, as president as well. When he beat up on woke people as president, he would. Uh, he when he give college commencement speeches, he'd be like, "You should listen to dissenting views. What's all this?" That's not beating up on woke people. Just a little bit. That's. <laughs> Listen to some dissenting views is, in fact, what free speech advocates on the left, like Noam Chomsky, have been talking about forever. That's not. That's not a. That's she not should a, make fun of. She should make fun of Stanford. She should make fun of the harmful eliminate harmful language elimination list. That'd All be right. that'd be a good idea. Well, Kamala free Harris. political advice. Don't listen to me. <laughs> if you're listening, um, the options are on the table. <laughs> We're rising for you after this. Stanford University has dubbed the words American or immigrant as potentially harmful. Monday, the university released a 13-page guide to address the, quote, harmful language that it wants removed from its online properties. The guide is part of the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative launched in May. The goal was to eliminate forms of harmful language, including racist, violence, and biased language in Stanford websites and code. News of the guidance went viral on social media, and many have called the initiative, quote, intensely stupid. And many people are right. Professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, also made his thoughts known, tweeting, I remember how proud I was when I became a naturalized American citizen. I'm still proud to be an American, and I don't care that Stanford disapproves of my using the term. And honestly, the whole American thing is, like, not even one of the, yeah, the, the craziest professor. examples so, on here. Clear, so the reason that doesn't want you to say the term um, American is because of people who are from South America who are like, we're also American in it. And it excludes us. It pretends like all Americans are Americans. It's not right. necessarily like a patriotism issue the way that you might assume from that kind of a comment. But there are a lot of... Really dumb. <laughs> so some of our favorite, beating a dead horse normalizes violence against animals. There's a lot of... Uh, getting any, a dead cat yeah, for the same reason. You can't say anything interesting ever. Wait a period. minute. Okay, that's that's not true. Like, okay, so, so, so some of these I think are a little bit of an... Stupid. Look, you're not supposed to say stupid. Well, we weren't allowed to call each other stupid when I was a kid. Well, you're not allowed to call people stupid. You can say that things are stupid. I have to go back. I'd have to consult my mother on that one. I remember we were asked to. I wasn't allowed to say stupid, so she gave us a dictionary, and I, I ran around saying that I, like, I, I loathed my brother. I abhorred my brother. <laughs> I was using all these kind of words instead, which I'm not sure helped. Um, but look, some of them are, are things that I think most people have come to terms with by now. Things like not saying. Gypped, oh, you know, because of Roma and other kind of things, which use people's identity. I guess I roll my eyes at all these things. But But if they don't have that, they they just don't mean that anymore. But what if I was walking around saying, "Oh, I really Italianed this up." I wouldn't care. (laughs) I really, I really Robbie'd this one. Well, that's a little. (laughs) You see how Robbie is a little more personal than Italian people. Well, maybe you don't identify that. People make fun of Italian Italian people all the time. People make fun of Irish people. I was just making fun of of America Vespucci before we came onto this. Right. (laughs) Well, that's this kind of gets confusing because it is okay sometimes to stereotype broadly or like tell jokes about people based on ethnicity, and sometimes it's not. 
And you can do it in a really mean and no, derogatory no, no. way. The thing but is, it's not about okay versus not okay. This is not a list where if you say any of these words on campus, they lock you up and put you in a gulag. This is well, the people the people who wrote this list certainly would like the power to do <laughs> no, that. that. Robbie, that's not fair. This is a suggested list that's fair. promulgated by like a couple of IT departments in an IT African American uh, affinity group that is suggested language that people should try. Elimination to get on board of harmful with. language initiative. Doesn't that sound dystopian? Though. It doesn't matter what it sounds like, well, Robbie. It's oh, what, no, it's, excuse what, what is, me. But what is the power effective? I mean, we, I think you can be critical of it and think that some parts of it are silly without jumping to some bizarre conclusion. Like, this is more, you know, draconian than it actually well, is. Okay, sure. No one is being, is being, um, Look, you know, obviously, there's, there's obvious things on here. Trial, but you know, or, or, oriental, Indian giver. Like, there are things okay, on here Okay, but there's that also are, a lot of things on this list that are contentious and that are constantly changing. If, for instance, I notice that you're not, according to this list, supposed to say survivor. Yeah, that's Like, survivor of sexual uh, assault. But survivor itself was a term invented to be preferred to victim by by a- advocates, by people in this space themselves. So now, yeah. I, I guess now the, the the woker of the woke have decided it's, that that's not good. Like, it's this the same is rapidly with the, changing. the African-American one. You're not supposed to say African-American, you're supposed to say black, which, I mean, I prefer, prefer black, but the whole point of African-American was that people were moving away from Negro. So these things do change. In fact, I was speaking to someone in the diversity and inclusion space, a friend of mine recently, and they were frustrated because they were in a meeting and some other diversity and inclusion person was mad at them for using language that pertain to their own identity. And the other diversity and inclusion person was like, well, we don't say that anymore. And she was like, who's we? I'm black. (laughs) So I think that even within this space, there's a lot of tensions as things are evolving rapidly and some of the stuff is going to stick and some of it won't. But let me ask you this, Robbie, looking back at some of the ones that we, we all consider to be the socially appropriate thing to do, like let's say getting rid of oriental or some of these ones that Mm -hmm. use, you know, words that refer to people um, with diminished mental capacity and things like that, that we all don't say anymore. Do you think, oh, we should say that stuff? Do you think it's a good positive um, evolution that we've moved away from some of that stigmatizing language? And if so, doesn't that mean that maybe some of this stuff, even if not all of it passes muster, is a push in the right direction? I think a lot of these have lost or, or should be considered to have lost their power to stigmatize because they're so detached from what their original meaning was. For, for instance, um, what is some of the ones that are supposedly stigmatizing of Asian people, like the um, uh, no, the what, what were the ones? No, no can, no can do. do. I think that was the Native and, American one. Uh, okay, but, but n- most people don't even know that that that's how it originates. So is it is it offensive if we don't even if we've lost the collective memory of what the trauma Maybe. wrapped up in it was? Look, I love that Hall and Oates song. With the no can do as a chorus, yeah. and that one that one was long time no see. Long that, time no that was see. What I, was of. Um, I say that all the time. Rule of thumb is one that some people say you should. Rule say. of thumb has very uh, uh, confusing origins. I've tried. They, they, it is debate. No one no, knows debated. for sure. But the, the the reason why you're allegedly not supposed to say it is because apparently a, a man was allowed to beat his wife with a stick that was no but bigger than a stick. I think thumb. that's an urban legend. I think that is an urban legend. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, but we, we, we can't miss out. Not It's not just that historically marginalized groups are being protected here. You're also supposed to avoid using the word Karen. Yes, this is my favorite entry at all. <laughs> Karen, which has just been invented within memory, is now a slur. So this list says, don't say Karen, instead say demanding or entitled white woman. <laughs> I'm which sure is that's worse by far more 
more offensive than the original term. I mean, I do have a very close friend named Karen. She is Egyptian and doesn't isn't is it wild about the way the word the way that uh, her name has been turned into this meaning? Okay, I, I don't think uh, I don't think the people who made this list are especially worried about stigmatization towards white people. I will just throw that Look out there. Look what they're taking from us. <laughs> Oh, it's just silly. I mean, these things go viral every time. There's always lists of microaggressions. At universe, so this is nothing new. No. If, if this is the first time you've seen this before, I don't know how you've missed the last 8,000 iterations of the stories. But elite universities are always putting out or they're being discovered. I've written many stories. I've, I've gotten scoops on those before where I found the university's list of microaggressions. Um, but it is it is a little bit permissious because while it is voluntary, they're just saying we would like you to do this. A lot of campuses do re- uh, maintain fairly robust reporting, uh, kind of under like secret police type stuff for reporting people for saying things you don't like that are then followed up on and like In what someone way? will someone uh, who, will who's reporting someone for saying mailman. It happens all the time. And then what's going to happen to them? Stan- show gonna, me the case of someone getting get kicked out of Stanford or their grades being put down or not getting a job opportunity because it could be because they could said be man a, hours. I've seen ca- a cafeteria worker and they probably get fired. Give me an instance of that actually having happened. So the because I was going through a list of microaggressions once, uh-huh. and I actual of reports of actual reports made, and um, this one was um, the cafeteria worker had put up a note in the cafeteria saying, "Please clean up for yourselves. You know, we're not your mothers." That was reported <laughs> for uh, for reinforcing, I think, gendered stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I also wouldn't say that. I would also prefer that people, you know, not say Minimum that. Minimum wage cafeteria but not, worker. But not firing people. Like, we have to... Here, you care here, if people say that? But, I don't care but if people here's, say here's that. part of the problem, it Robbie. a little bit of color. In a lot of these cases, even if I agree with the underlying kind of ethos, as a leftist, I don't... I'm not supporting of firing people in this economy, in a world where your ability to have health insurance and get your kids and your family checked up by well, a doctor I, is contingent on your employment. I appreciate that, so, but I even so, I don't even agree with the underlying... I but, don't but, care but, if people but, say Robbie, that. Right. Part of the problem is that we are we are some of the anxiety around being fired and canceled and, cens- and censured it has to do with the fact that we live in a society where there's no social safety net and people feel like I can do one little small thing, make one little small mistake, and it can destroy your life. It shouldn't in any con- in any context destroy your life. So like, look, I think most of this is maybe because I'm too old, like. It, it goes a little too far from my taste. Some of these, I think, are socially acceptable and have been internalized, even though they probably thought they were weird at the time that we made some of these shifts, because it is good to, to move away from a world where we use other people's identifying characteristics to mean stupid or dumb or awful. But so many of these, so many of these are just, uh, for instance, I just came across, you're not supposed to say wheelchair bound. You're supposed to say person who uses a wheelchair. I can see how I guess that's a little softer and a little nicer and a little gentler. It's much longer. So many of these are just like stretching language sure. out, making it take longer to write and say and communicate. Sure. The purpose of language is to concisely communicate ideas. But it also is communicating. We're dragging things out it without. Also- it's not. We're not treating people in wheelchairs any better or worse based on using this terminology. Right, but like. I'm not trying to argue everyone, but you do see what the purpose of that, though, is. It's not just to make it longer. It's to say that there are people who are in a wheelchair who are not confined to a wheelchair, bound to a wheelchair, or otherwise restricted. Sometimes people use wheelchairs for some of the time. It's an aid in mobility, but they can still walk and move around a little bit. They're in there temporarily. Things like that. So it's just trying to 
more accurately, just be more descriptive. And I don't think that you should be you mad at people that, that for trying to be more descriptive. No, wait, the, the issue is being mad at people for not using your preferred language, not the uh, idea that language should evolve to be more accurate. But if it's just making it longer, harder to say, is it making more accurate? George Carlin has this great uh, routine. You've probably seen it about soft language, how... how um, uh, shell shock syndrome becomes post-traumatic stress disorder over a period of time. There's all these in-between stages where the term gets a little longer. Still describing the same concept, being really screwed up because you got blown apart in war. Mm -hmm. and, and at no point are, are we not doing that anymore or making those people's lives better or not putting them in a situation. We're just describing it in nicer, longer, gentler terms. And in fact, maybe disguising the horror of the condition by making it longer. I, I, I think, think about that I think, a lot. I think that's fine. I think that tar baby... Is not that. <laughs> and like this list has a lot of diversity on it. And it's worth taking a look at. Let us know what you think in the comments. Don't you ever call me a Karen again? It's, uh, it's, <laughs> you use the full slur, Brianna. More rising after this. Over the last two weeks, author Michael Schellenberger has been one of the journalists involved in the publication of the Twitter files. Earlier this week, installments seven and eight of the Twitter files were released. According to Schellenberger's reporting, the FBI allegedly discredited factual information about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings before and after they were revealed by the New York Post in October 2020. Joining us now to tell us more is the author of Apocalypse Never, Michael Schellenberger himself. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the mainstream coverage that dismisses your reporting and others as a big nothing burger. What do you think is the biggest something burger from your chunk of the Twitter files disclosures? Well, I think the basic fact pattern is itself pretty alarming. I mean, we know that the FBI took the Hunter Biden laptop from a computer repair store in December 2019. We know that they spent tw the year uh, 2020 issuing very strong warnings to Twitter, Facebook, and the mainstream news media that a potential hack and leak was coming in October. Uh, the head of uh, site integrity, who later became the head of safety and trust at Twitter, testified under oath that, they, that the FBI had warned him that that hack and leak would involve Hunter Biden. We know that Rudy Giuliani was being surveilled, listened to, his phone calls were tapped, his, being, his emails were being monitored by the FBI in 2020 when he gave the laptop to the New York Post. And we know that the FBI had to know that the laptop itself was legitimate, um, both because they had the computer sale signature by Hunter when he dropped the computer off, and they were able to tell that the, the laptop indeed had belonged to Hunter Biden because it was something that was easily verifiable by going through the data. So what you have here is an effort to basically mentally prepare or prime the Twitter executives and other executives that if they were to see a big story like a Hunter Biden laptop top leak, it was likely the result of a hack and leak operation um, that led directly to tw Twitter's decision to censor it. And I think most importantly, to discredit the uh, laptop in the minds of voters. I myself <laughs> did not believe that the laptop was legitimate and did not take it seriously because of the circumstances because we had all been so mentally prepared to think of it as part of a Russian hack and leak operation. 
Mm. Yeah, I remember when uh, when the story came out and, and you first started hearing a lot of people in, in the mainstream media and elsewhere saying, "Oh, the end. Yeah, pay no attention to this. This is Ru- this is probably Russian-based misinformation." I remember thinking, "Okay, but." Are you saying then there's no laptop repairman? Would that be like an actor hired by Russia? That's where it started to lose. How, did, how would you explain that part? And now from your reporting, we know that the FBI yeah. was, a, was aware, right, that that guy exists as a human being. So if you knew that, it, I don't know how you, you're starting to get into pretty wild territory to think this is anything other than what it actually appears to be. So doesn't that, um, doesn't that, suggest some really irresponsible behavior on the part of the FBI or a desire to steer the conversation um, in, in, in directions that they know are not legitimate. Yeah, I mean, it is it's the implications are very disturbing. Um, and, you know, people point out, well, we don't know that the people who had the laptop at the FBI and who were monitoring Giuliani um, were the same people that were warning Twitter of the hack and leak operation. We don't know if the people warning Twitter of the hack and leak operation um, knew about the laptop or about Giuliani and the surveillance, but they didn't need to know. They just needed to be following orders from higher ups in the FBI who almost certainly did know about it. And that's why we need a proper investigation either by Congress or by a special prosecutor because the FBI is such an important law enforcement organization. It's the organization that well, obviously, it's playing this important role in terms of providing information or misinformation, as the case was, to Twitter. It's also the organization we rely on to clean up police departments. We do not want a politicized FBI. Nobody should want a politicized FBI. Nobody on the right, nobody on the left should want that. And you're right. In terms of the computer, the computer repairman, you know, what one of the things that the former head of Twitter's safety uh, department said in an interview with Kara Swisher a few weeks ago is he said he was kind of a weird guy. You know, he has a lazy eye, and so he, he looks a little different. Um, he's a Trump supporter. And I think those things all sort of had an influence on people. But he, here he had the receipt with Hunter Biden's signature on it. He had a subpoena from the FBI showing they had taken the laptop. So, yeah, I think that this is very fishy. And maybe there's nothing there, but this needs to be looked into, because if there was some sort of effort to basically prepare people mentally to dismiss what the FBI knew would eventually come out, uh, that's uh, that's illegal. That's actually uh, interfering in an election and also potentially covering up criminal activity that was on the computer itself. Really incredible stuff. Now, Michael, I, I know a lot of folks are curious about how you came to be in this position where you're able to go through these documents and have access to the Twitter files. Uh, this The eighth drop with uh, that was reported on by Lee Fong of The Intercept is the first one where it's someone who has not been given direct access to the documents but was able to make a series of um, uh, requests, kind of an interrogatory request, and get specific searches done on his behalf and then returned to him and he was able to write some really compelling um reporting on that subject. People want to know, given how fruitful that exercise was, is there likely more of that to come? And what was your um, path toward getting the direct access to the Twitter files? Sure. And thanks for asking. I mean, I think it is important for people to understand um, how we came into this. So I was invited by my friend Barry Weiss uh, to come into the office because I do live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's uh, easy for me to go over there. Um, And so I I joined her. um, 
I should I should say I've um, only written critically of Elon Musk in the past. I criticized him uh, actually in Mother Jones. So 10 years ago, I criticized him in my book because um, I've got criticisms of solar panels made in China. And so um, I'm not uh, someone that is and I'm not sort of super blown away by I think SpaceX and Tesla are impressive, but I'm not a fan or, or anything like that. Um, we were given very broad and growing access to basically whatever we wanted in terms of email, internal messages. The main constraint is just that these files, there's so many of them. And um, I think, you know, you, we would sort of ask for very broad amounts of data and it would actually take a long time to be able to get it off of the computers. So that hasn't been a constraint. Um, we have not had anybody say no to us at any point for asking for information. And we also, um, in terms of Li Fong, who is a reporter that all of us admire very much, um, we all wanted him to come in and take a look at that data since he has someone that has tracked particularly the role of the U.S. military in psychological operations. So, um, yeah, we hope there's more to get. I'm, uh, I've been going back uh, yesterday and today. And it's also a bit of a strain on Twitter. You may have noticed that there's uh, that Elon Musk has said that he wants to re replace himself as CEO. He's under significant stress as a CEO, and we're putting a lot of strain on the legal staff there to whom we're very grateful. But it is taking some significant amount of time from the company at a time when they need it to get their house in order legally yeah. and financially. So there's so many interesting questions we can we could ask you. So you're interacting to some degree with Twitter employees who are who are performing these searches of, of the data with you. I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, interactions between Twitter employees and law enforcement, FBI that are part of the Twitter dispatches time and time again. Where I, what I'm seeing is a kind of range of responses from eager compliance some of the time pushback other times. Obviously, they didn't fulfill every request the FBI makes them. So in one of the previous dispatches, the FBI is asking them to take down like election-related jokes, and sometimes they say no, sometimes they say yes. Um, some, there, there was that uh, a great, uh, I think it was from your, uh, really, your dispatch, where, uh, where like the internal Twitter memo employees saying that the FBI considers us the least compliant platform. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, you know, what are your overall impressions of, of how Twitter employees approached um, requests, <laughs> I put them in quotation marks, from, uh, from law enforcement, from the government? Yeah, sure. I, I think we do have a much clearer picture of this um, now that we're two and a half weeks into reading that information. And I've personally read um, thousands of pages and um, thousands of emails. Um, the basic picture, and, and we were all um, somewhat critical of this particular character named Yoel Roth. He was definitely very progressive in 2017. He famously tweeted that there's Nazis in the White House. Um, but honestly, I think uh, he was a professional. He was a company person. Uh, he was reporting to someone um, named uh, Vijay Gada above him, who reported directly to Jack Dorsey. And the picture is basically that Jack Dorsey did want uh, Twitter to remain uh, uh, relatively neutral. Um, I do think he made some wrong choices, um, but you know, on the laptop itself, they did reverse themselves later on the December, later on October fourteenth. Though I do think it did the damage because it discredited the story. But nonetheless, I think the picture was they there was some effort to be fair. I mean, I, I think most the vast majority of the content moderation decisions that Twitter made, 90 to 95 percent, I personally would have agreed with. I think most 
uh, sensible people would agree with a lot of those content moderation decisions. Um, they made some uh, tough calls that I think uh, they ultimately kind of went the wrong way due to pressure. I wrote about that in terms of the decision to deplatform the president, uh, even though they kept on the Ayatollah of Iran and other figures who had incited violence. And we kept seeing them basically looking at tweets, whether from Trump or in the case of the New York Post, and internally evaluating them and deciding that they did not violate Twitter's uh, rules, their terms of service or other standards they set, and then deciding because of political pressure to um, either censor them or deplatform them for just rules they made up uh, at the time. And to some extent, that's understandable. They're making up rules as they go. That's how it has to work. But I think they went the wrong way on that. Um, and then, yes, I did see significant pushback from Twitter uh, senior staff against the FBI um, and other intelligence communities who were relentless in making demands for information that they should not get outside of a warrant mm -hmm. process. Um, and it really wore away on them. For a long time, there was some confusion around the money issue because I pointed out that they took $3 million from the FBI. Um, that was reimbursement for the legal fees that FBI was incurring, sorry, that Twitter was incurring in responding to FBI requests. Um, and so on the one hand, that sounds sort of innocent, but I do think they were not taking that money before 2019 because they realized that it did create a bias in the sense of there is then more incentive to work with FBI if you're going to get paid for it, you're going to get legal fees, particularly for a company like Twitter that everybody knows was losing money. So it's really that on that consistent pressure from FBI. Plus, I look at Yoel Roth as basically a victim of a disinformation campaign by the FBI. They were absolutely... Uh, they, they kept telling him that there was all this foreign influence on the website and they kept, you know, Twitter staff kept looking and being like, there's really nothing we're finding. I mean, even Joel Roth says later, it's mostly adolescents that are mm. causing the trouble, um, the, the troll, the troll armies and, you it know, the bots the and all that. And they look at the Russian <laughs> accounts, there's very few of them. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those such great points is my impression as well. The, the exact phrasing you used, worn down, is I, th I think I used in my writing summarizing what, what you had found, a, a sort of commitment to neutrality and, you know, broadly allowing speech with sensible moderation, worn down over time by relentless uh, communications from the FBI. Uh, Michael, we are so lucky to have had you with us today. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for making time for us. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. There's more coming from Twitter CEO Elon Musk. Yesterday he tweeted, I will resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. After that, I will just run the software and servers teams. This comes just days after he tweeted out a poll asking if he should step down. And other Musk news, the police have provided the first official details of Elon Musk's alleged stalker incident that occurred last week when he tweeted that a crazy stalker followed a car carrying one of his children in Los Angeles, thinking it was him in the car, and that the stalker blocked the car from moving and climbed onto its hood. According to The Guardian, the South Pasadena Police Department has confirmed that an incident involving two vehicles was reported to the police on Tuesday night, but said that a member of Elon Musk's security team is currently a suspect in the investigation, not a victim. Hmm. Okay, so that second part is relevant only insofar as the reason it informs the the re, yeah the, the the excuse 
the rationale yeah. that he offered for why he was going to block a series of journalists last weekend who were reporting on that incident was because it, they were posting real-time information about a stalking event of his child, which substantively does not seem to have been the case. And even if the child were in danger, which is, is not, not, a, not a, anything, anything should, anybody should thumb their nose at, that's a serious thing, it's not clear that the plain data that was being reported really had a relationship mm -hmm. to what had happened in this car. Yeah. Okay, fine. What do you make of the big news that Elon Musk apparently is going to follow the advice of this poll that he might not have expected to go in the direction that it did? Or he fully intended to do this anyway and then did this poll. Perhaps, but the conversation that was happening after the poll results came in, which I think he lost he, about 57% of people said that they would want Elon to step down. You know, Which for a reason, and I explained yesterday, is a terrible way to make yes. any decisions about anything. <laughs> yes. It's random online polls. Correct. Yeah, that's how you get Bodie McBoatface. That's how you get Bodie McBoatface. But like he, he's a poster. He's a tweeter. So he was having conversations with people about this. And some folks uh, opined that you know, the poll was rigged, that, you know, liberals had been circulating it and it wasn't an authentic mm -hmm. result, and that maybe what he should do is do a new poll where only blue checks were allowed to vote, and it seemed like Elon was interested in that alternative. So there was a thought that maybe he was just going to reissue the poll, set new conditions. I don't think people who, people who bought their check mark <laughs> recently, those people aren't like the rest of us. They, they shouldn't get to vote either. Only authentic, verified. <laughs> only the, only the, votes, the, yeah. the knights of the sword get to vote. <laughs> Look, but, but you see it's like I, I a mean, narrower, narrow, narrower yeah. version of people who seem to have rights in this universe, which is, again, not the populist vibe that we were getting from these, his initial um, Asked by Twitter. I think it is a good idea for him not necessarily to be running Twitter as closely as he has been running it. For the, the, the level of replies he has to people asking him questions on Twitter is frankly insane and, and <laughs> seems like it could be harm, it could harm his mental health. I'm worried about his mental health. I'm worried about his, uh, his like stamina and stability here. Uh, I th again, I think it's a it can be a good thing that he has acquired Twitter and that he has these stated commitments to different policies and that he's also making more transparent how many of the decisions were made under the previous administration on Twitter. That does not necessarily mean, even though maybe he's the right person to own Twitter, he might not necessarily be the right person to to run it day to day. So finding someone who maybe has a little bit more experience in just how difficult content moderation can be, but shares his uh, his stated commitments. Seems like not a bad idea, honestly. Yeah, and we also have to consider that there are some really significant negative consequences for the Tesla stock, which um, has been falling. It was under $150 mm -hmm. as of yesterday when I checked. People have been really surprised that he's been going back and forth with with Tesla shareholders. Um, one uh, tweeted that the Tesla stock price now reflects the value of having no CEO. Great job, Tesla board. Uh, time for shakeup. Elon Musk replied to this person saying, please tell us your great ideas. And there's like this back and forth in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want if you were trying to responsibly own a, uh, run a company. Um, and doesn't exactly inspire the kind of confidence in shareholders when you're badgering and arguing with shareholders on a, a public site. It is pretty transparent. It, it's tran it's not, wildly public. Not all transparency is going to reflect positively on Elon Musk or the share price of his enterprises. Yeah, but... 
So well, if that, what problem would you have with that from like a leftist perspective? None at all. Yeah. But I'm not uh, this um, Ross Gerber fellow who is having this this issue with Elon Musk. So for the people who are Elon Musk fans mm-hmm. and for people who legally he has a fiduciary duty to his stockholders, do I wish corporate law were structured that way? No. But it is. And he has a legal liability to his shareholders to do what's in their best interest. And I'm not sure engaging in back and forth arguments on the Bird app is fulfilling that responsibility, especially since doing so. Yeah, it I, I, has a direct relationship to the stock price. Bottom. Sure, and I am again. I'm also I'm concerned for him, like mentally. It seems like he's too online, and he needs to log off for some amounts of time. It's healthy for everyone. Everyone should do it more and more. Um, so that would be, I think, that would be a just perfectly fine outcome if uh, if someone else becomes CEO while he remains owner. Yeah, and look, I, I do also want to say. There is a tendency that people have who have been successful to believe that their own success in their field means that they can do everybody else's job mm-hmm. well. And it reeks of a certain kind of elitism. You see it a lot with people who think, you know, I'm going to fire this workforce. We don't need train conductors. We don't need, um, you know, garbage collectors. We don't need mailmen, whatever. Anybody can do that job. It's just a kind of a lack of respect for a lot of people in working class jobs. But you also see it in circumstances like this, where, look, I understand why you want to fire your legal team. I understand that there were particular individuals who needed to go because of the relationship with the FBI, et cetera. But you still need help. You still need guidance. And running a tech company is not the same, you know, running a a media company, rather, is not the same thing as running a more straight tech and engineering company. And there are going to be bumps along the way. I don't think that anybody expects Elon to hit the ground running and not to make any kinds of mistakes. But there's a kind of um, indifference to advice that's coming through in the public way he's willing to stumble through all of this um, and not really internalize as much guidance as I think he could be doing. And as someone who really believed in the underlying stated mission for him buying Twitter, which was to have more transparency in the decision-making processes and who gets banned and, you know, who gets shadow banned and, and how the algorithm is working, I want there to be successes here. But again, it's not clear to me, given the kind of indifference he seems to have to listening to the advice of people who are really knowledgeable in this industry. I'm not talking about people at Twitter, but people more generally, that he's in a position to do it. So maybe him taking a little bit of a step back would facilitate the original mission. Yes. And what I want most desperately is clear procedures for how one rehabilitates themselves if they have violated, surreptitiously violated some policy and gotten themselves in a do not amplify or do not search for category. Or if we're going to continue to have those categories at all, which maybe we're not and maybe we shouldn't, it seems like far too many people have ended up being victim of them, including perhaps you and I. We don't really know. But that transparency around that and what you do to not be on that list anymore would would just be a massive improvement. And uh, one, I, I hope he is still in a... A position to pull off whether so, or not he's CEO. Picking journalists off the app over this real-time location posting doxing accusation mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't inspire. Yeah, a lot it of seemed confidence. like a bad move. It was criticized by many people who support him, including Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss. who is doing some of the Twitter filing yeah. herself. Uh, had an exchange with Elon about it the other day, saying it, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't a good idea. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I think that's true. Um, it is again. It's very. Th- this was the world that many 
outside the mainstream have lived in for years where they could be arbitrarily and randomly thrown off the platform with very little explanation sure. at any time. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of tears shed for them right, in the mainstream I, media. Robbie, but there weren't a lot of tears shed from the mainstream media. There were a lot of tears shed on the left. The left has been mm-hmm. consistent throughout, and this is the, the problem. No, I know that. I'm not, I'm not attacking a, the left. A lot of folks are saying that everyone who has a criticism of Elon basically needs to mm-hmm. shut up because they're being hypocritical. That's not true. There's a huge volume of people who have consistently criticized Well, a lot of people on the right don't understand the difference between the left and the main, liberals and the left, and I, I am, I'm here always trying to explain it. Yeah, them, well, I but. appreciate you for that, Robbie. Mm-hmm. You're a real mensch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brianna. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, law professor Edward Lee will join us. And we'll also discuss what Sam Bankman Freed faces next in the aftermath of FTX's collapse. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen well on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I think our music is growing on me. I don't do I speak for you here? It's growing on you a little bit. Give, give me a, a couple bit. of weeks. All right. <laughs> give you a couple of weeks. We'll see you guys later.